Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to Exploring Mormon Thought. We took a bit of a break, but now we're back and we're going to continue with chapter 6. And like I talked about last week, it features some discussions about grace and works in LDS thought. The title of the chapter is Soteriology in LDS Thought. So right off the bat, what's just a basic definition of soteriology? A theory of salvation. Okay. All right, and so with that, let me just read kind of this intro to the topic from the chapter. It says, The relationship between divine grace and human response is at the center of theological reflection. It has also been the source of endless debate over the respective human and divine rules in salvation. It is a common charge brought against LDS thought that it preaches salvation by works and that it focuses on works to the exclusion of grace. The tension between works and grace is not a long-standing tension from the beginning of Christianity except to the extent that we see this tension built into kind of a dispute between Paul and the Epistle of James. So we see the term justification, which is the technical Pauline term, where he is saying that justification is by grace alone. And we see James saying that we're justified by faith that is perfected in works, not merely by some empty faith or grace, because without works, the faith that we have would not even exist. It wouldn't be faith at all. So this goes back to kind of the very first centuries of Christianity, in the sense that it's not enough to just believe and say that you accept God. You've got to do something about it. I've written several articles, as a matter of fact, on the tension between Paul and James, in part why there really isn't a tension and in part why there's more tension than we first see. That may sound like a contradiction, but the reason that they're not quite as intention as we think is that Paul and James use the same terms in totally different ways, so they're talking past each other, but they certainly have a different emphasis. There's been a great deal of work, and we'll talk about this in later chapters, on Paul's thought and how it fits into his Jewish background. And more importantly, there's been a revolution in Pauline scholarship called the New Perspective on Paul, which we'll get into in later chapters. But I think suffice it to say that the role of grace in salvation, what salvation consists in and so forth, was the focus of evangelical theology and preaching since the early Reformation in America. It was certainly something that Augustine focused on, and Luther followed Augustine, and it was largely Luther who revived the Augustinian view that salvation is by grace alone without any works. And in the context of the both Augustinian and Lutheran thought, because human beings suffered from original sin, they were incapable of doing anything, including an act of free will, to accept any grace accepted by God. So unless God acted upon us by an act of irresistible grace to overcome our obstinate wills, we could not accept grace. And in Lutheran thought, and certainly in Calvinistic thought, we don't even have a movement of will with respect to grace. It is simply something imposed upon us externally. We'll get into that at length in later chapters, 
But that's kind of the background that Joseph Smith is working against. You have this very strong notion of salvation by grace alone on the one hand, working with the Presbyterians in his family, Presbyterians or Calvinists, and on the other hand, with a Methodism that he preferred, and the Methodists in his family, which preferred the Arminian view that God gives sufficient grace to all, some people freely accept it and some people don't. And so this tension was built into the family that Joseph Smith grew up in, and at least by the time he is involved in receiving revelations, this is a debate that he's very well aware of. His vocabulary and the way that he expresses his thoughts show that this is one of the central issues that he had been educated about regarding Christian theology to the extent that he's aware of theology at all. All right, and so as you've elucidated, you said, in this chapter, you argue that the LDS view is not deficient of its elucidation of grace and divine mercy, and it seems to you that the general Protestant failure to recognize an appropriate role for works in Paul's thought in particular, and Christian thought in general, has led to distort the LDS thought in their view. Uh, In particular, fellowship love entails works of love and keeping the commandments which define the law of love. So you say in for this chapter, you want to explain how the LDS view of grace opens a space for healing our hearts, resulting in deliverance from our own self-deception that somehow we need to justify ourselves. Once we know that God regards us as acceptable to Him simply by faithfully and trustingly accepting His gracious offer to enter into a relationship of intimately shared life, the blinders of our hypocrisy come off and the shackles of sin are loosed. So you remember a couple times ago, that's what we talked about, and this is what we were leading up to of now how we're going to do that. So we're going to talk about, as you said, Joseph Smith kind of had his own views or terminology. And so just to begin, we need to clarify some of the LDS meanings. And so we've talked about this before, but there is the term equivocations where we're using words, but we're using them differently. And so what you do in this chapter is first is try to clarify what LDS people mean by common terms that may have different meanings in different evangelical traditions or just Christian traditions in general. Some of the terms are redemption, salvation, exaltation, works, and grace, and they function a little bit differently in LDS thought. All right, and now Jacob's going to take us through a big development in LDS thought, which you call the vision. All right, and it's actually... Uh... Joseph Smith and his contemporaries knew this revelation as the vision. And it is a vision that was received on February 16th of 1832. And like you said, it revolutionized LDS soteriology or the theory of salvation. And the first thing to note is that it's imperative to understand that Joseph Smith's revelations teach that we are saved by confessing and recognizing Jesus as the resurrected Christ and Lord through grace. It's simply that according to both Paul and LDS scripture, All persons, literally everyone born, will at some point confess Jesus as Lord. Right. This is based upon both Isaiah 45 and 23, which is quoted by Paul in Philippians 2 and 10 through 11, where he says, at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. In essence, both are making the assertion that virtually everyone is going to recognize Christ as Lord at some point and bow the knee to confess that he is the Lord. So there's this sense of universal recognition of Christ. And what section 76 is recognizing, it's what Paul recognized before him, 
that when one recognizes that Christ is the Lord, that at that moment, one is essentially saved. So what are we talking about when we talk about salvation? Now, the Pauline works don't give some kind of clear definition. He's not doing theology and saying this is what salvation means. But section 76 does use the term saved in a very specific way. And what it means is that those things that would destroy us, we are saved from. We are saved from death and hell and from the wrath of God. And so to be saved is to be saved from those things. It's not the same as the term exaltation, which is used in the vision or section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants to mean living the very kind of life that God lives and having every gift that God has to give and having and sharing fully in the glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It's what in Protestant evangelical theology would equate with the term glorification. So when a person is glorified, then they share fully in the glory of God. Now, there are obvious differences in the way that they speak of glorification because ontologically we can never be the same as God in that tradition. But generally, they speak of a notion of theosis and glorification, meaning that as much as God can give us everything he can give us, anything that a created being could have, he gives to us when he gives us his, his glory. And it is his very same glory. It's just not the very same level of glory. Let me also talk about the optic that I use for these terms, at least early on in this discussion. The optic is this very early vision in 1832. However, it was not shared widely among the Latter-day Saints. It was kind of it was regarded as, as meat too strong to, to chew for people who were still being weaned off of milk. This is a metaphor that Jesus used in the Gospels. So they didn't share it widely when it was first received by Sidney Rigdon and Joseph Smith. The other thing I want to point out is that Sidney Rigdon had been taught in theology. He was a minister in the Disciples of Christ when he converted to become a Mormon. In his tradition, these terms had a very specific meaning. The disciples of Christ are non-credal. A lot of people don't know that, but they still use very Protestant categories when they use these kind of terms. And these terms are used deliberately in section 76 to reflect the discussion as it existed in the terminology also of Joseph Smith's times. All right. Now, before we get into the different terminology and what exactly that means in the vision, I want to back up for just a second because we have the very prominent theme in the vision of the universality of salvation. That comes up against what we have numerous scriptures, both in the Old and New Testaments, agreeing universally, without exception, that judgment is based on works that one does in the body over the course of his or her entire life. And so I just want to make sure we're talking about the distinction that, in this view, salvation is not only available to everyone, everyone receives salvation, yet there's something beyond that that includes what we do in this life and what we will be judged on. So as I said, in the vision, the scriptures in, in Philippians 2, verses 10 through 11, quoting, of course, Isaiah 45, is expressly quoted toward the end. And it is a recognition of universal salvation, that all are saved that are given to the Son. This is quoting also language in the Gospel of John. What it's recognizing is that virtually everyone who is ever born will at some point bend the knee and recognize Christ as Lord. Everyone is saved except one very small group, and they are saved, but they fall from grace because they then put Christ to open shame and then become sons of perdition. And so that's the way that DNC 76 sets it up. 
But let's also get clear on what the terminology, the background of the terminology we're working against is. In Protestant thought, justification is by grace alone, and it is the first movement of coming into being a Christian. So to be justified means that one is recognized as not righteous, but as guiltless. So one is accepted as guiltless at the moment, and and justification isn't a process, it's just a moment. It's the moment when one accepts Christ and becomes a Christian. Contrast that with something we'll discuss in greater detail later, but the notion of sanctification. Sanctification is seen as a process, and whereas justification is by grace alone, sanctification is by a synergy of both works and grace, whereby one grows in relationship, as you will, to become glorified, and one one becomes increasingly sanctified over a lifetime. So sanctification is a lifetime process in Protestant thought. In the vision, and here's here's what I want to point out and why this became kind of the background scripture. Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery are in Kirtland, Ohio at the John Johnson Farm, which is just outside of Kirtland, actually. And they're doing the translation of the Bible that Joseph was called to do. And they run across John 5 and 29, which says in the King James Version, All that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. And what's interesting is this is basing whether one is damned and whether one is saved on what one does and not merely on grace. They say in the vision, this caused us to marvel. So why are they marveling? Well, they're marveling because all of a sudden they're realizing, hold it, salvation and the judgment, and it doesn't use the term, it's it's the resurrection of life for those who have done good and the resurrection of damnation to those who have done evil. It is now focusing on a different moment than either justification, which comes in a moment, the lifetime of sanctification that, that a Christian would grow in, It's now looking at the moment of judgment at the resurrection. And what they're marveling over is, hold it. You mean there's going to be a resurrection? And at that moment, we're going to be judged according to what we do, and we're going to receive according to what we do. Now, I want to make an assertion, an affirmative declaration. And that is that in every single scripture, Old and New Testament, when they speak of judgment, they always speak of judgment according to works. One receives in judgment according to what one has done. Judgment is never by salvation, and one does not escape judgment. There's some Protestants who actually believe you escape judgment if you're saved, but that's never taught in either of the Old or New Testaments. Everyone is judged according to what they do, and virtually everyone will receive according to what they do. So our reward is based upon works. Justification is based upon grace, and sanctification is based upon a synergy of works and grace. You got it clear? Yeah, seems to make sense. I, I just think the key point there is that salvation, because a lot of people think that's being saved and being able to, to live with God, and it's just that salvation is being saved, again, in LDS thought, saved or delivered from God's wrath and delivered from the devil in hell. But then again, we have to be sanctified before we can be exalted. Yeah, and, and they're very, I mean, this is a point that very few Christians understand their own theology. I discuss this with evangelical Christians all the time who don't even understand their own thought. There is no form of Christianity that's, that says, there are, I mean, there were those, the strong libertines who said, you know, 
once you're saved, you can do whatever you, dar- you darn well please because you're saved forever and you can't fall from grace. This was the argument between Calvinists, essentially, and Arminians, at least one of the arguments. It's one of the five points of Calvinism. Once saved, always saved is the phraseology in English. You cannot fall from grace according to the five-point Calvinistic point of view. So once you're saved, nothing you can do will forfeit your salvation. And I guess what that means is that you can get away with anything that you want, and they don't even make a qualification that you don't put Christ to hope and shame or anything like that. You simply can't fall from salvation. Let me point out there are some scriptures that are superficially read that way, but there are really no scriptures that support that view. I'd be willing to give an exegesis. It just isn't a sound exegesis of Paul's thought to say that he ever contemplated that a Christian wouldn't be judged according to their works. He never contemplated that. So the bottom line is that to get clear on what grace is, grace is the moment when one becomes a Christian, enters into a relationship with Christ, and Christ recognizes us as without sin because we're regarded as innocent. That is, we're regarded as not guilty. It doesn't say we're righteous. It just says that guilt isn't held against us. For Protestants, and we'll discuss about this later, that's a forensic declaration. In other words, it has nothing to do with our actual righteousness. It has to do with Christ's righteousness. And because he's righteous, he covers whatever guilt we have. And so it's by grace alone. Arminians would say, no, we actually make a choice to accept Christ and enter into a relationship with him. So there's a division among Protestants there. And for Catholics, grace is not an external work, it's an internal work. In other words, there's a real righteousness that works in us. Christ actually works in us to impart his righteousness. And so we have these divisions in theological views. What Section 76 is doing is saying, look, we are essentially justified. We are redeemed is the term that's used in the Book of Mormon to be essentially the theological equivalent of the term justification. What is being redeemed means? It means that the things that would otherwise occur to us, such as death and hell, will not occur to us because we have been redeemed from those fates, and we won't suffer those. We've been redeemed from the effects of the fall, and we are now in a process of sanctification, working toward exaltation, and Section 76 actually works in terms of saying that we grow in the light until the perfect day, And it quotes the Psalm 82 to the effect that we become gods, even the sons of God. And so we become sons and daughters of God in exaltation. That is, God adopts us into his family and and we become glorified with the fullness of the light of God's glory, which is what Section 76 is teaching. All right. And I do have a question. It might be a tangent. and If it's not that relevant, we can skip it and you can cut the part out. But I did want to ask about where having one's calling an election made sure would fall into this, because that seems to be almost a type of a Calvinistic of, though you have been sanctified, you've been declared sanctified, and it's almost impossible to, to fall from that unless you become a son of perdition. Yeah, but what we're doing now is is mixing a lot of revelatory development between Kirtland and nearly 10 years later when we're in Nauvoo. And the question you're asking has to do, I'll back up and say that there is this thing about having the second comforter and calling election made sure in section 88. It's reflected, however, most prominently in section 132, which is a revelation that Joseph Smith probably had some form earlier in his the history of the church. 
but was only reduced to writing in the late Nauvoo period. And so what we're dealing with it requires a lot of conceptual background. Short answer is this. The calling an election made sure is still the notion that one can fall from grace, but the only thing that will cause one to fall from grace is outrightly rejecting Christ. If one proves him or herself to be faithful, and they have tested to such a point where the kinds of tests that they put through and they've remained faithful, as a reward, their faithfulness for passing that kind of a test is recognized. Okay, so it's like when Abraham's asked to give Isaac, and then God says, now I know that you'll do anything that I ask you to do. However, we can still there's still a, a notion that one can fall from grace. And in fact, section 76 cautions and says, but we must beware because we can fall from grace. It's explicitly rejecting the Calvinistic view that once in grace, always in grace. But even the calling and election made sure recognizes that rejecting Christ will result in losing the calling and election. What one must do to reject Christ is the key to understanding that. Putting Christ to open shame, some would say coming out in open apostasy against Christ. But one can put Christ to shame in a lot of ways that can lose to falling from the exaltation that one has earned. And keep in mind, what section 76 says happens to those is that there are two resurrections. There's a resurrection of the just. That's a first resurrection. They come forward, and they are the, those who have been exalted, they've been baptized, and have been strong and fervent in the testimony of Jesus Christ. They receive a celestial glory. However, those who have not been valiant, is the actual term used in section 76, in the testimony of Christ, there are good and honorable people who nevertheless will not be fully exalted, but they receive a lesser degree of light. We have this analogy to the light of the moon to give us an idea what they're talking about, but it's only analogy. There's a full gradient of different degrees of light. But people who are honorable but nevertheless didn't accept Christ in this life will come forward in the resurrection and enjoy a terrestrial degree of light. Those who have been murderers and whoremongers and so forth wait until the last resurrection, and then they're brought forth with a celestial degree of light, which is like the light of the stars. But those who are sons of perdition don't come forward to a degree of light. They're in outer darkness. And what section 76 says is, you know, God opens a vision of outer darkness and what it's like to be a son of perdition only briefly, because what they have chosen to be is so starkly difficult to take that even looking at it would cause a person such sadness that it's almost impossible to deal with it because of the kind of thing that they have chosen. And they never come forward to a degree of light. Here's the reason why. They have rejected the light when they fully enjoyed it. And it's like they're shut inside a door. They refuse to open the door that locks on the inside and nobody can break down the door. And they won't reach out to us and we can't get into them because they shut us out. But if we can't reach them and they won't reach out to us, it's as if they don't even exist for us. And they're without any degree of light and exist in total darkness by analogy. And their fate is desperate, dire, and damned. And I, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. But in early Mormonism, there were a number who had become faithful Latter-day Saints and then sought to kill the prophet and sought to have the saints driven from hilt to post, dispossessed of their lands, dispossessed of their inheritance. And according to Joseph Smith, those are the kinds of people who actually are sons of perdition. 
So the notion that one could not fall from grace is not true of any degree. And having one's calling and election made sure does not ensure that one could never do anything that would forfeit that exaltation. All right. So to just sum up this section real quick, because Joseph Smith's revelations address particularly those who already have been saved or baptized into the kingdom, sometimes we lose sight of the fact that grace is essential to salvation and that salvation is by grace rather than works. But the usual complaint that Latter-day Saints seek to save themselves through their works is a failure to pay attention and understand what the term salvation and being saved actually mean. In other words, Section 76 isn't about salvation by grace. It doesn't address that. It addresses the, the reward in terms of degree of light and glory that is received in the judgment according to our works and according to what we've done. So it focuses on a very different stage of our relationship with God. It doesn't focus on the very beginning stage of justification or salvation or redemption. All right. And again, summed up, uh, we are saved by grace, but we are judged and rewarded according to our works. Right. And according to DNC 76, God saves all the works of his hands, save those who are sons of perdition. Everyone is saved. It's a universal salvation. And what constitutes a son of perdition is not well defined other than that they put Christ to open chain. All right. On that note, we will uh, move over to faith unto repentance and move back to Corey. Okay. Um, and in the Book of Mormon, there's this quintessential story of repentance from Alma the Younger. And most of you probably know this, but if not, in some, he was the son of another Alma who was a prophet at the time. And Alma the Younger was going around and berating the church, and then his father prayed, and then basically he saw an angel, and he fell down for three days, and while he was kind of unconscious, he had kind of this vision experience of of seeing Christ and, and repenting. And anyway, you say, the initial account of Alma the Younger's redemption only reveals to us that Alma repented and shows us the results of Alma's repentance. How did he come to repent? Did he choose to do so on his own, of his own free will? Was it solely Christ who brought about this change, or some combination? And Alma the Younger felt tormented by his sins, and he recognized Christ as the Son of God, and then he asked for mercy. And you say, and that is it. It's that simple. That's where the salvation comes in, basically. He recognizes Christ, and he asks to be helped by him, and that help has already been offered, basically, and so all he had to do was accept the gift. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, what this particular pericope tells us, and, and Alma emphasizes this, there, there are two different accounts of how this happens. One's in Mosiah, the other's in the book of Alma, Alma 36, where Alma's reflecting back and he said, you know, one moment I was in the, the chains of sin. I was in tormented by the greatest pain you can imagine. I was in darkness one moment, and then I called upon Christ. And all of a sudden, I had the most exquisite joy I've ever known. And he looks up and has a vision of God on his throne. So one moment he's in hell, the next minute he's, you know, seeing God in vision and has the greatest joy imaginable. And so what is it that makes the difference? The difference is calling and asking on God and asking for mercy through the Son. And one is delivered from this hell. And so this is the moment of redemption when one calls upon Christ and asks for his mercy to be accepted into his life. And yeah, you point out the Book of Mormon is clear that faith 
entails repentance in the sense that we must turn away from whatever alienates us from God and then turn to God. And so you, you kind of point out repentance, the very meaning of the word, the way I understand it is a kind of just means an about face or to to turn towards or turn away from something. And in the religious context, it means to turn from sin or, you know, the wrong way and then turning towards God. What's interesting is that when the Book of Mormon talks about repentance, it's fairly obvious to me that it has the underlying terminology of a Hebrew term, shuv, as its underlying notion of repentance. Shuv just means turn around. It means that you're headed one way away, you're walking away from God. It just means turn around and go the other way. And so you have this notion of turning around and returning to God, or turning back to God is the kind of phraseology used in the Book of Mormon constantly. And that is the Hebrew notion. And God is waiting for us to turn around and walk back, and his arms are constantly extended to receive us. And so it has this notion of this choice to stop walking all alone in the direction away from God and then to walk back into his waiting arms. And this is what repentance means. But it's not simply this metaphor of turning around. In order to walk back into God's presence, the Book of Mormon goes on, We must change our lives so that the imperfections are driven out of it so that we are willing to remain in God's presence. The Book of Mormon makes it clear that if we're outside of God's presence, it's because we can't stand to be in his presence because of our sense of guilt. It's like Moroni says, we would fain be glad to have rocks fall upon us and cover us, to have our imperfection compared with his perfection. And so, unless we have repented by giving up our sins, turned from them, and driven everything out of our lives that gets in the way of being in a relationship with God, we won't willingly stay in his presence because it would be torment to be in his presence. So this is the way the Book of Mormon speaks of repentance. It means ridding everything in our lives that keeps us from being comfortable in God's presence and fully loving him and being committed to him. And so this notion of repentance, turning around, and then adopting a life where we can overcome any sense of guilt being in his presence. Right, and then you basically said this, but the difference between, well, not the difference, but well, we'll get to that. So you say, conversion is thus a turning away from sin and also a turning back to God. It is the human act of choosing to end the alienation that separates us. Conversion takes place when a person is willing to wholeheartedly repent by turning from sin and turning to God for forgiveness of sins. So repentance is a condition of salvation. However, it does not earn or merit salvation any more than accepting a gift that is offered earns or merits the gift when it is given. Sure, one doesn't earn the gift by putting one's hand to accept the gift when offered. But what happens is when we turn to God and we realize that we desire more than anything in our lives to be with him, then we will, as a result, as a fruit of turning to God, of a result of our the fruit of accepting Christ, we will desire to do what God asks us to do, and God has asked us to enter into baptism as a sign of the covenant that we are committed to be his love on earth, to mourn with those that mourn, to comfort those that stand in need of comfort, and to rid from our lives everything that gets in our way of being an effective child of God, being an effective emissary of God, and being in relationship with God. And that's the Book of Mormon notion of what repentance brings about. But the notion that somehow Mormons therefore must believe that we have to merit our salvation is just a false notion. 
In other words, repentance isn't a work of merit by which God says, oh, what you've done is so valuable, now you're worth something because you've done something valuable, and you have this realistic sense of righteousness in you like Catholics teach. It is rather, this is simply what people do who love each other, and once you realize you love somebody, you want to get rid of everything in our lives that prevents us from being in a real loving relationship on the negative side, and on the affirmative side, we will do everything we can to demonstrate our love in order both to heal the relationship and to effectuate the relationship. Right. In the book, you point out that there's a little dispute on what happens first. Is it conversion or repentance? And can you kind of explain what that dispute is all about? Yeah, I mean, this is really an internal Protestant dispute about what has to come first. For purposes of Mormon thought, one doesn't come before the other. They're both kind of the result of the same movement. One is converted to Christ and therefore led to repent because one is converted to Christ. But one could also say that the conversion is a part of the process of repentance. And so it's kind of a false dichotomy. In some Protestant theologies, it's an important distinction to show that we don't earn our salvation by repentance. Rather, repentance is a fruit of accepting Christ. Okay, and then the next thing you bring up is, you kind of ask the question, is baptism then essential for salvation in LDS thought? Because as you stated at the get-go, coming back to Christ or in his presence is something that's going to happen to everyone. Now what happens after that is obviously, at least in LDS views, determined by how you lived your life. So is baptism essential to get that salvation in LDS thought? Yeah, clearly not, because the vast majority of people who've ever been born onto the earth have not been baptized and don't need to be baptized because they died as children. And one does not have to be baptized in order to be either saved or exalted because little children aren't. Rather, baptism is something that's required for those who reach an accountability to actually make a choice, who have lived long enough where they become accountable for what they've done and can reach a point of conscious recognition of what they have done and repent. And then baptism is a fruit of desiring to be in relationship with God. That is, I'm turning to God and I love him with all my heart. Naturally, I'm going to want to do what he asks me to do. It follows naturally from the notion that I have a relationship with God, that I will be faithful to him in the sense that if he asks me to show my commitment through the sign of baptism, that I am going to do that. And because I'm a follower of Christ, and I want to emulate the life of Christ, and Christ was baptized, I am baptized in order to become a Christian. That is, I ritualistically die with him when I go into the water, and I resurrect with him when I come out of the water. And so baptism becomes merely a sign of my commitment to God and my love for him, and it is a fruit of my love and faith, not the cause of them. And so, you know, how does this work in real life? I mean, most people, for instance, I was baptized at age eight. To say that I really didn't know what I was doing would be an understatement. I had no theological ideas then. To say that I understood, you know, what was going on would be just a false statement. I was doing it for one very simple reason, and that is my parents said I should do it. (laughs) And so how could that stand in the way of my salvation? But later in my life, I fully owned my baptism And I'm grateful that in my life I have the symbol of of identification with Christ. Now, I have other books out where I assert, and, and I believe that virtually every ritual we have is a way of experientially identifying ourselves with and as Jesus Christ in his human experience. 
And so what baptism, we identify ourselves as Christians by being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. So we recognize them as the center of our lives at this moment. And then we become identified with Christ in his death and resurrection. Now we can be called Christians because we've committed our lives to be identified with him and with his own name. And therefore, just as Christ is the first Christian, so because he is a Messiah, and what Messiah means is an anointed one, we therefore become Messiahs ourselves. We become anointed ones. We become Christians. So we're going to do one more section, which is going to split this chapter in half, but this leads into the discussion for next time, but I want to talk about the parts that relate to today's discussion. So the next section is atonement, and I want to talk about it in regards to repentance and faith into repentance and stuff like that. So you have a quote here, it says, It is also imperative to grasp that repentance is made possible only through the atonement of Christ. The very freedom to choose to turn to God, the ability to repent, is a gift of the atonement. The atonement makes repentance possible, and repentance makes it possible for the mercy of God to be extended in a way that does not conflict with God's justice. And so, at least regarding what we're, we've been talking about, the ability to even be able to have sinned and then turn about is only possible because Christ performed this atonement. And we're going to get into all sorts of atonement theories and stuff like that later on. And so we'll go in depth on, you know, what it is that this atonement actually did or was. But again, in regards to this conversation, we're talking merely about the ability to repent depending on that. So what can you say about that? This is a, a notion that is somewhat unique to the Book of Mormon. It's not even pushed all that much in the Doctrine and Covenants, but it is a, a view held by many of the prophets, not all, but many of the prophets in the Book of Mormon, and it is this. that And, and so, for instance, um, Nephi talks in Nephi, we would become angels to the devil if there were no atonement. And the reason we would be angels to the devil is there would be no way to deliver us from the effects of what we do. And the reason there would be nothing to deliver us from the effects of what we do is that we would not be free to choose between life and death. We would not be free to have the benefits of the atonement by accepting it freely when it's offered to us. And so what the Book of Mormon is teaching is that the atonement makes it possible for us to make this choice between life and death. And we are rendered free. It's something that is given to us. We don't earn it. It's a matter of grace. God is making us free to choose for ourselves as a result of his atonement. That's what the Book of Mormon teaches. Is there any further that we could go without getting into the next section? Yeah, it's as far as we want to go now. One, I would get into my views of self-deception, and we will get into how we are in bondage as human beings to our bodies, to what we have done in the past, and how we're unable to overcome because we really don't have any choice to be able to overcome our past except for the work that has been done by Jesus Christ in offering us the loving relationship that he does. For now, we can just leave it at the level that the Book of Mormon talks about it with the assertion that it is that because of the atonement, we're free to choose for ourselves forever. That's in Second Nephi 2, and it's reflected again in Second Nephi 9. Okay. So with that, yeah, we'll conclude this part of the discussion on soteriology, and next time we'll pick up where we left off.
Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.